is an Odyssey original. This is KDAX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. More and more adults around the country cutting off contact with at least one parent. We'll go in-depth and explain why. Hollywood actors and writers are hardly the only workers going on strike this summer. We're looking at whether the labor movement is on the comeback. We'll take you to Phoenix, where it is so hot that a major new heat record has been set. We start with why more adults are cutting off contact with one or both of their parents. Joshua Coleman is a psychologist in the Bay Area, author of the book Rules of Estrangement, Why Adult Children Cut Ties, and how to heal the conflict. Joshua, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so uh, let's get right to it. Why are more adults cutting off contact with one or both parents, and is there evidence to support that? Well, sure, there's there's numerous studies that have been done that show that the numbers are, are quite significant. You know, one study found that 26% of children Um, don't have any contact with a father, which is very high. Um, And that's based, you know, in in many ways, a result of divorce. It's based as a result of non-marital childbirths. We know that. So, for example, if a child isn't born in a a marriage, then something like 40% of those births, which are 40% of those births happen in the United States, a very high percentage of those will never have contact with the father late again, uh, later in life, something like 11% of mothers are estranged from their children. So it definitely seems to be on the rise. And there's a number of ways to think about it. One is that in the United States, we have rising rates of individualism, which means a preoccupation with what makes us happy, feeling separate, our identity, our boundaries, uh, the way that therapy has become far more accepted and popular. So people are thinking about their childhoods. They're talking much more about their childhoods. There's much more uh, acceptance about it. Uh, The rise of millennials and Gen Z coming forward discuss their crises. The hashtag toxic family, for example, has 1.9 billion views on TikTok. So there are a lot of things that are contributing to the rise in estrangements. Is one of the factors politics and culture? Yeah, there was an Ipsos um, study that was done about four years ago that found that 16% of families were estranged over politics. And politics have just become far more divisive than they once were. It used to be that, you know, if you're a Democrat, your kid was going to marry a Republican. Well, maybe that wouldn't be your first choice. But, you know, as long as my kid loves that person, then we'll accept them. Now it's like, you know, the opposite party is the enemy. And when we feel very contemptuous of them, and that can cause fractures within the family as well. So that's certainly big. But I think the culture of therapy and people thinking a lot about what's going to make me happy, who's toxic, who do I have to have boundaries with, um, is hugely important. And on the one hand, it's a good news, bad news situation. The good news is that people are no longer obligated to stay in contact with family members who are explicitly abusive and shaming and humiliating. On the other hand, a lot of really reasonable, and I see this in my practice all the time, a lot of reasonable parents who are willing to do the work, willing to go to therapy, willing to take to do family therapy are also just being cut off in this very absolute way. So it's very much of a good news, bad news situation that we find ourselves in. It, it sounds to some degree very much like a, a 21st century uh, problem in search of a solution or maybe a solution in search of a problem. I mean, historically, the human race uh, has existed for quite 
a good number of years. Uh, with parents very often just having kids for the sole purpose of being able to take care of farming the fields. Uh, and there wasn't much talk about, uh, you know, having great relationships and whether or not children were or were not estranged from their, their parents. Parents had the kids. It was something that they did. The kids grew up and they went on their way. Some of them had relations. Some of them didn't. Nobody made a fuss about it. So is it a bad thing necessarily that there is this estrangement if somebody wants it? It's, well, it's a good news and a bad news thing. And the good news is that people don't have to to stay tied to somebody who's continues to be hurtful and shaming and rejecting. The bad news is that there's a lot of parents who are being cut off today who are very workable, who've been loving, who've been dedicated, who are willing to to do therapy and whatever it takes. You're you're right that our notion of family has has changed from honor thy mother and thy father, families forever to. Um, you know, I can choose my family and my relationships have to be constituted purely on the basis of whether or not that relationship is good for my happiness and mental health. But I think parents today are given kind of a bad rap. Parents today are, you know, to your point, are no longer just supposed to launch their kids into out of the house and hopefully they'll get, you know, a decent job to support themselves. Now parents are supposed to give their children all this kind of social capital and self-awareness and confidence and, and happiness and ability to go out into the world and you know set it on fire basically in a positive sense and if they don't then they're viewed as being failures by their children and that's being viewed as a reason to cut the parent off so i think that there's been an erosion in our sense that children actually do owe their parents something that isn't purely based on you know whether or not mm. this relationship makes me feel good in the moment uh, joshua coleman psychologist thanks for joining us right now though is this the summer of strikes Hollywood, as you know, dealing with two work stoppages, writers, actors, local hotel workers have been striking, and a potential UPS strike, which would be national, of course, is looming. Kent Wong is director of the UCLA Labor Center. Kent, thanks for being with us. Great to be with you. So uh, I can't even tell you how many stories I've read in the past year or two talking about the decline of organized labor in the country, and yet... And yet, here we are in uh, the summer of 2023 with a few and one potentially really large labor strike. What's going on? What we have seen is a dramatic increase in labor organizing and in labor activity, not only here in Los Angeles, but across the country. In part, it has been caused by the three years of the pandemic which has only seen increase in economic inequality and tremendous economic insecurity among workers across the board. You know, there is a feeling among uh, a lot of these labor organizers that over the past few generations, uh, big corporations have gotten so big and so powerful and the people at the top are making so much more money and the gap between the rich and poor is just getting wider and wider and wider. And that is fueling this, I guess, critical mass of labor movements that are seem to be all coalescing around this summer. Does labor have a point? Has is there so much money at the top that this is the only possible response they feel they can make? What we find is that for the last 50 years, this represents an all-time high in public opinion surveys 
with regard to the public attitude about unions. There is a, a strong view that corporate greed uh, is um, out of control, that uh, when you have people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk spending billions for a few minute joyride in outer space, while their workers are struggling to survive, uh, a lot of people are raising questions about uh, what is wrong with this picture. And for the thousands of hotel workers, writers, actors uh, who are currently on strike, uh, they think that um, corporate greed has really gotten out of hand. How much, though, is this sort of newfound love uh, for organized labor uh, a product of where one happens to live? Uh, L.A., check. New York, check. Boston, perhaps, check. If you live in, uh, I don't know, Huntsville, where you live in Tampa, Florida, do you have the same enthusiasm for labor unions? What we find is that actually the trends are national. Uh, 200 Starbucks stores are organizing across the country. Uh, we have uh, a lot of teacher strikes, even in deep red states, and uh, organizing among uh, Uber and Lyft drivers, organizing among tech workers is taking place online. So many of the workers, even though they live in areas where there's not a lot of union activity, they are now connecting and intersecting with unions. Uh, on the side of management and big business, they say that, you know, the reason we're not paying workers a lot of money is because we simply can't afford it. And I think a lot of people would argue, well, the, you know, the, the guys at the top are making an uh, awful lot of money. So the money's coming from somewhere. But at one point is a labor movement, even one as strong as this one appears to be this summer. Is it enough to make a really lasting change? The reality is that California, if we were a standalone country, we'd be the fourth largest economy in the world. The reality is that even during the pandemic, uh, Wall Street has been doing very well and profits are extremely robust. We have a dynamic where you have hotel workers who are cleaning rooms that are renting for four and $500 a night, and yet they don't have enough room to, uh, they don't have enough money to live in Los Angeles. And so they're commuting two and three hours uh, each day. And um, we have 70-year-old hotel workers who can't retire because there's no pension. So I do think that uh, this, uh, this extremes of wealth and poverty uh, in the second largest city in the country is also fueling uh, this energy around organizing and strikes. All right, so, but now let's take it from the point of view of the mogul. Uh, so, uh, and I'll just pick, not at random because he put himself out there last week, uh, for the, uh, you know, the studios to talk about the strike, Bob Iger, for example, who is a CEO of Disney. All right. So the guy is making more money than the gross national product of many countries combined, but maybe his argument would be, you know what? I deserve it. I I'm running an incredibly complex global organization, employs hundreds of thousands of people uh, they can't possibly understand the intricacies of the job that I have to do. And if it were not for me, they might not even have a job. So what about that attitude? CEO salaries are rarely pegged to success. We've had many instances where companies have gone belly up and yet the CEOs continue to make massive profits. We've seen billions in foreign, in, in federal bailout to uh, maintain worker retention in the hotel industry. And yet we learned that two thirds of the money were actually pocketed 
by uh, shareholders and corporate executives. So there's something very wrong when even during a pandemic, when we should be working together, pulling together and acknowledging the contributions of our essential workers, that uh, uh, corporate greed seems to be at an all time high. Kim Wong uh, with the UCLA Labor Center. Thanks. Did you know that uh, there are really popular legal shows on YouTube? And we a little bit later are going to talk to one of the most uh, popular such shows on YouTube about why we all like to watch that stuff. Right now, though, back to the Hollywood strikes and what the production stoppages are doing to businesses that rely on those productions. Mike Mars, president of uh, Hollywood Honey Wagon and uh, Production Vehicles. Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. So, Mike, if you would please uh, explain to us what your business does and how hard you're being hit right now. We rent location work vehicles uh, to the entertainment business, but also to live events. In fact, Grand Park Fourth of July celebration in downtown Los Angeles thankfully went forward, and we supplied them with six different trailers. We're the little guy, and we've always targeted some of the smaller non-union kind of productions, and and right now we're glad about that. But probably 60% of our business has definitely fallen off. Uh, We have a wardrobe trailer at Warner Brothers right now that was on Night Court, and it has shut down, and so many others. Uh, Thankfully, that Commercial production has their own little contracts, and we're seeing that sort of coming back now. Um, I'm sorry the right the I'm sorry the writers went out. I'm even more sorry that the actors followed suit. Sixty percent though, definitely hurting the little people. Sure, and and you mentioned sixty percent drop off. I mean that's a sizable amount. I get that you get other income from uh, non-union productions and other events, but 60% is still 60%. Extremely hard, yeah. Do you think that you are going to... How many people work for you, by the way? Well, in-house, we have. I employ five people. But then on any given date, we employ other drivers, mostly, that help to deliver our things, and they are technically being employed by the production company that rents from us. So there's, you know, it's, uh, uh, you know, a dozen people are affected by us. We're just the little guys, though. So when it, when, it, when it affects you, uh, if you do want to say, who do you blame more? Do you blame the actors and writers or do you blame uh, the bosses, the studio heads? I don't want to blame anybody. It's, you know, I only wish, in the immortal words of Rodney King, can't we all just get together and figure something out? But uh, technology moves forward. It, it's it's hard to go back in time. Uh, you know, I, I mean, in 1929, there were all these musicians that worked in, theaters, and they were always going to have a job because films needed to have music as a background, as background, and there were, you know, and sound effects and that sort of thing. And then there was, even in the small little cinemas, there was a Wurlitzer and someone played it. 
but that went all went away when sound films came in and and as much as and lots of actors lost their jobs back in the day it's hard hard to stop te- technology it's hard to stop progress how long can you keep on going if that 60% uh, 6 figure, months 6 months six that's months. it and what, and after six months, if the strike lasts that long, what then for you? Well, then I'll start researching, um, you know, ban- what it means to go into bankruptcy. Uh, Mike, I'll hire a bankruptcy attorney. Uh, Mike Marr, uh, good luck to you. I know that's a hard choice to face. Mike Marr, president of Hollywood Honey Wagon and Production Vehicles. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. It is summer, so saying it's really hot in Phoenix is uh, not going to be a big surprise to anyone. But uh, it's how hot it is and for how long that's a little unsettling. Yeah, the highs in the uh, city hit 110 degrees or more for 19 days in a row. Now, that's a record for a big U.S. city. Dr. Eric Madison is director of the emergency department at Dignity Health Chandler Regional Medical Center in the Phoenix area. Doctor, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So uh, what, first of all, does uh, day after day, 19 in this case, of 110 plus degree temperature do to humans? Well, so much of what we're seeing right now is just sort of a continuation of the spectrum of heat exhaustion and subsequently potential heat stroke. If people are able to get respite and stay out of the heat, we do okay, as long as obviously we have air conditioning and we can be indoors. However, unfortunately, what we're seeing is people who aren't able to get out of the heat and even 30 minutes of that, or heaven forbid, if they passed out and they're on hot asphalt where the temperatures can get up to 160 degrees, we can really see some significant issues. Uh, granted, it's going to be different for everybody, but is there a general rule of thumb of, as how hot is too hot and factoring in humidity, et cetera, that it is not safe to be outside for any length of time? Uh, everybody's different, and that's, and that's the difficult thing because different people come in with different hydration status. Right now, we're supposed to be in our monsoon season. Unfortunately, we haven't had any rain so far, but even in the mornings, if you go outside, it's 90 degrees. It hasn't cooled down below 90 degrees um, as a low. And so if you factor in even 30, 35% humidity in the morning, that alone could put you at prone for heat exhaustion and heat stroke and other heat-related injuries. But if you factor into other issues like medication that people are taking, if they're using alcohol or diuretics, uh, substance abuse, obviously, as well, it takes a lot less to put them at risk for these type of injuries. Does this continuing heat, besides uh, impacting people physically, I would imagine it would affect them psychologically as well. I would think people would be just downright really nasty. I mean, like Rob and I, we're in air conditioning, yeah. and we're nasty all we're the time. In each other's throats. Yes. <laughs> so so uh, I, I can't imagine what would happen if it were 110 degrees in this place every single day. Do you see that as well? Yeah, you see, I wouldn't necessarily say the psychological trauma from it. You just see that you can definitely see in people just being short and tired of the weather, to be honest. And and I've lived here in the valley for over 23 years now. And and even I am getting to the point of you go outside and um, I was at my daughter's diving camp yesterday for 30 minutes from 430 to 5 o'clock. And by 30 minutes of even sitting in the shade, I, I was ready to get out of there. Mm. And um, so, you know. Uh, 
If this is becoming the new normal, and by many accounts it, it will be, of course we'll we'll have cold times during the winter, but the summers are going to begin to average uh, on the higher end of the spectrum. Uh, what would you like to see cities do to help mitigate that for people? Well, one of the good things about the city and the county of what they do are doing is quite a few different cooling stations where they have shade for individuals who can't find relief. They're able to hand out water bottles as well. Obviously, we need to figure out how we're going to get an increasing unhoused population shelter because, again, if it's only cooling down to 90-some degrees at night, that's not sustainable for a long time. So we need to find ways to find comfort in cooling. The bigger concern I have is if there is a significant power outage, and I know today in Mesa alone, there's about 4,000 people affected with a power outage. But if a study came out in May through the Arizona State University and University of Michigan stating that if there was a multi-day power outage in the Valley in July, we would see about 800,000 people requiring an ED visit because of heat-related injuries. You would see a estimated about 12,800 deaths just from that alone. And this is, again, 800,000 people needing ED visits. We only have 3,000 ED beds in the Valley. So if we had a multi-day blackout, that is something that would be significant. So in terms of shoring up a power grid and making sure that doesn't happen, I think would be really important preventative care. So, I mean, you're the director of an emergency department, right? If, if you had, this is a, a, a fantasy scenario, if you had unlimited amounts of money, what would you do differently in the hospital to prepare for such an event that you just described? Well, I don't think there is any scenario where we, you could possibly prepare for it. That's the, that's the scary thing. Is any hospital would just be completely inundated because even if you had the capacity and the staff, there's no way you would have enough physicians um, and just simple things like in any mass battle trial situation that we get ready for. You have to think about um, just simple things like gurneys. Where do you store people? Where do you put people? Um, do you have enough IV equipment? It, it, it's just something that, unfortunately, no matter how much preparation you had, you would never be ready for that. Um, it, it's just some sense. Simply, if it happens, you would have to open up basically all the stadiums, recruit every single healthcare provider, whether they work in the emergency department or not, recruit every single nurse that you need. And then again, remember that these people are probably facing the same hardship of illness because if you had a blackout, um, everybody would be facing the same consequences of the heat. Uh, Dr. Eric Madison, thanks so much. At Dignity Health Chandler Regional Medical Center in the Phoenix area, which has had 110 degrees or more for 19 days in a row. Who doesn't love a good courtroom drama? It's why we have TV shows like Law & Order and why, remember, Court TV was yeah. once a, a huge hit on, uh, you know, cable television. And now legal analysts are using social media to talk all things law. Former L.A. County prosecutor Emily Baker is uh, probably the most popular with 125 million views on her YouTube channel and more than 720,000 subscribers. She's the host of The Emily Show, and she's on with us now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Glad to be here. So why are people so addicted to, to courtrooms? Courtrooms are completely unpredictable. If you tried to script the things that happened in court, nobody would believe it. And I think there's something really riveting about that. But there's also parameters to it and rules to it that people don't always understand. So it's a 
completely different thing that people get to see. You get a snippet of stuff you don't normally see, whether it is high profile defamation cases or homicide cases. And there has been a very long fascination with this and with technology. We have more trials streaming than we've ever seen before. And it is gripping. I remember uh, I had covered uh, on live TV, TV for CNN the Klaus von Bülow trial and then in later years OJ uh, here in L.A. And the debate started then. It is still a debate about whether or not uh, TV cameras and, and publicizing to the extent that some trials are now publicized doesn't somehow for the worse change the system. What do you think? We have an open court system where anyone could go and sit and watch court. So with that system, you can either have reporters in the courtroom telling the audience what has happened every single day, or you can just stream it and let the audience decide for themselves. I think courts have done a really good job in trying to balance this, but it is something they still struggle with, especially in the early stages of a trial before we get a jury picked. Once a jury's picked, we've seen cameras do a really good job of staying away from showing the jury, of being sensitive to um, victims or witnesses that might be minors, of not showing graphic crime scene photos. And courts have done a really good job of reining that in. But I think the public should know how their court system is working. And that helps them understand the results. If you see the evidence day in and day out, I find people much more likely to understand how the jury reached a verdict than if you don't have that kind of coverage every single day. So I think it's a great thing, but it's also what I do for a living. And I want to watch these trials too. And my chair at home is much more comfortable than sitting in the courtroom. <laughs> uh, you know, I, one of my favorite things on YouTube is when you have uh, real lawyers and legal experts critique court scenes in TV shows and movies and like, no, that never happens. We don't do that. That's dumb. That's for dramatic purposes. But people streaming these uh, real courtroom dramas and more and more people are doing it. Are people actually learning about our judicial system? Are they are they coming away with a little bit more in-depth knowledge? Absolutely. I had over 300,000 live concurrent viewers during the Depp v. Heard trial day in and day out asking me questions in real time. What is this motion they're making? What does that objection mean? Okay, you said that wasn't the right objection. Emily, what objections would you make? And you can teach it in real time, helping people understand legal jargon that's normally hidden behind hundreds of thousands of dollars of a legal education. So I do think people come away with more of an understanding and understanding strange concepts like what does it mean to find somebody 50% liable or 40% liable? And we got to talk about that with Gwyneth Paltrow and that ski crash collision about how much somebody might be responsible for an injury, even if it's not 100%. There are many uh, former prosecutors uh, from L.A., from Chicago, from the, you name the, the city, lots of former prosecutors. Why did you choose to go down the road you have now chosen to go down? When I left the district attorney's office, I started doing consulting work and I was working mostly with online business owners. There weren't a ton of lawyers in the space. Lawyers and technology don't always go well together, but it's something that I always enjoyed. And during the pandemic, a lot of that came grinding to a halt. And I started focusing more on my podcast that then grew into my YouTube channel because people were like, I want to see the documents that you're talking about live. I'm like, oh, we can do that. We can just live stream it. And then it took on a life of its own. And it's brought me a tremendous amount of satisfaction getting to talk in real time and explain court and see where people understand or don't. 
And what I was surprised to find is there is a very large international audience that is like, wait, how do you do jury trials this way? Why, why are those the rights? What does double jeopardy mean? And it's really nice to get to explain our legal system to a much broader audience. And it's a ton of fun for me. Uh, very quickly, before we run out of time, uh, we get audio from some Supreme Court uh, hearings. Uh, do you think there should be cameras there? I wish there were cameras there because seeing the facial expressions of the judges during argument can give away quite a lot of information. I would love to see cameras in federal court as well. Some of our most consequential cases play out in federal court and there's no cameras and no audio. Uh, uh, one more. Uh, what what courtroom uh, do you really want to be able to see that you might not get the chance to see? I really want to be able to see the Girardi competency hearing streaming next month out of Los Angeles District Court, but I don't think that's going to happen. I might have to show up myself. All right. Thank you so much for joining us. That is uh, Emily Baker, host of The Emily Show, talking about how we're all uh, very addicted to courtroom drama. And now the news and brief. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had an idea that was coming. <laughs> now you're going backwards. Yeah, I wanted to see if we can catch Karen by surprise. <laughs> uh, that's it for KNX In-Depth today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.